This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by Noble Knight, where Out of Print is available again, and listeners like you. Thanks for using The Tome's Amazon and DMs Guild affiliate links. Welcome to the Tome Book Club for January and February of 2017. The Tome is a D&D news reviews and interviews show, and I'm your Tome host, Tracy Hurley. And I'm Jeff Greiner, and in each book club episode, we discuss one D&D-related book, spoilers be damned, in a full book club style. And our book this time around is The Secrets of Solace by Jalee Johnson. And next month, we'll be reading the book Verdant Passage by Troy Denning, a classic Dark Sun book that starts off a five-book series. We're set to finish it at the end of April. Please feel free to join us. But now, onto the book for this month, The Secrets of Solace. But before we do jump into that discussion, I should mention our sponsor, Noble Knight. They're a brick-and-mortar game store with an online store as well. They specialize in finding out-of-print products for you. And my pick for this episode is actually something I stumbled on in their store as I was looking for a, a pick of the episode, and I ran into a critical hit deck for players by Nord Games. To, to add a bit of crazy fun to your 5th edition D&D game, you can pick up a deck like this. It's like $12 from, from Noble Knight. Uh, and uh, basically every time you roll a crit, you pull a card from the deck and, and, and you know see what other crazy thing besides just the normal critical stuff happens. Uh, and you know watch the insanity ensue. Uh, I've used similar decks like this that Paizo created back in my third edition days, and it's kind of been something I've missed since uh, changing editions. So uh, they actually have separate decks for players and DMs, but uh, I've kind of added both of them into my Noble Knight cart. So I, I plan on picking these up and checking them out, and, and you should too. And when you do, make sure to tell them that the Tome Show sent you so they'll know to keep coming back and supporting the show. Print games are nice. Shop Noble Knight, cause they've got the best price. And if you got gaming products to sell, then Noble Knight will buy them as well. So go to the place where gaming's the bomb and head over to noblenight.com. And don't forget to tell them the Tone Show sent ya. Alright, we're back. Also joining us for the show is Eric Paquette. Hey, Eric. Hello. How are you guys? As always, joining us for this, uh, Eric Paquette. I feel like this is really Eric's show, and we and we're just here to host him. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> just one regular short up. All right. Do you guys want to dig into the secrets of solace? Yeah. Let's do it. All right. What's it about? The secrets of solace is about. Um, this girl who lives in a mountain where there's like a whole city that lives in the mountain and they're all sort of uh, it's sort of like a mountain of, of archaeologists maybe sort of tinker archaeologists right there's they live in this world where um, strange technology from other worlds occasionally falls to the earth in this certain area in the form of like meteors and they recover the technology and sort of figure out how it works and they study it and and uh, you know, classify it and do all the things that that academics do when they run into new things. And uh, she's kind of a uh, doesn't like 
living the normal sort of structured life sort of thing and and her parents are dead because every protagonist has to be an orphan in every setting in every story ever right isn't that a rule right okay Uh, yeah (laughs) so she's an orphan uh and she doesn't like following the rules and she's discovered all these like secret tunnels and passages and old old uh crevices and things inside the mountain city where they live and uh uh, one of the things that she's found in her explorations is an old airship, um, and they're not quite sure what it is, and, and she's trying to get it, dig it out and repair it and get it working again, but there's these giant boulders in the way, and um, so she needs help, but nobody can, nobody's small enough to squeeze through the passages until she bumps into, quite literally, um, this strange refugee, because there's a war going on in the world, but this city's not involved in it. Uh, so this strange refugee bumps into her and and she, you know, follows him through the vents and finds out that he's actually the prince of one of the warring kingdoms. Uh, and she sort of uh, recruits him into her efforts and shows him how to sneak around the the city and gets down to the airship and he helps pull it out and there's a, a plot on his life and they have to uh, use the airship at one point to rescue refugees stuck in a snowy mountain pass and um, they save the day but the airship is is this weird sentient airship that's not actually from another world it's from uh, the undiscovered lands on their own world but uh, the, you know rather than letting the people study it they they help it escape and, and fly back home and I think that's that's more or less it right what did I miss? So do you think it's kind of like a mashup between World War One, Switzerland, and Flight of the Navigator? Yeah, so yeah. I kind of got some Flight of the Navigator-ness from it. Uh-huh. What'd you say, Eric? Yeah, no, I think so. They do World War One, and basically the, archive, the archivists in the Three Mountains being trying to maintain neutrality, but being re- keeping the refugee, they sort of break it. But they have a deal, stuff like that. So, uh, but yeah, yeah. So, so I'm curious now. This is actually the second book in a, in a series, sort of. Uh, and I'm curious how you guys sort of got along. Now, I've I've read the first book, uh, the Mark of the Dragonfly, uh, but I don't think either one of you had. Is that right? I haven't read the Mark of the Dragonfly. Tracy, have you? No, I haven't read it either. So how did you get along in this, having not read the, the previous book? I felt the book was good. I mean, it, it was in this world, and it explains stuff that is happening elsewhere. I mean, the, does Mark and the Dragonfly talk about the, this war that's going, or or is that something new that came from this book? It's interesting, because while this is being called the second in the series, like the stories aren't directly connected. They just happen in the same setting. You might presume that the book Mark of the Dragonfly was more focused on the Dragonfly territories, which is one of the countries that's in the war. Um, but if I'm remember, it's been a while since I since I, I listened to the audiobook. It's been a while since I listened to it. But um, as I recall, like tensions were there, but the war hadn't started yet um, in Mark of the Dragonfly, and none of the characters from Mark of the Dragonfly appear in this book. So so there's nothing like new in terms of characters that you're missing out by not having read the other book. Um, there's some, there's some places with the, the meteor fields, right. Where the, the technology and stuff falls that I think they, they went into a little more detail that maybe made, well, in some cases made a little more sense, or they at least ex- described it more 
in Mark of the Dragonfly, where I think there was more shorthanded in this one. But at the same time, like this one, you get the sort of academic sort of uh, analysis of what the meteor uh, fields actually are, whereas the Mark of the Dragonfly was just this mystery, because most of the world has no idea. There's just this weird stuff that falls out of the sky. Seems legit. Yeah, totally. Uh, did they explain a little bit more about, um, I'm trying to remember how to pronounce it, the Shenelins? The... The, 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 yeah, the Shenelins. The, the shapeshifter people, right? Yeah. Yeah, so so I, I don't know if explained a little bit more is the right word, but one of the main characters ends up being a shamelin. Um, the, 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 a real quick version of, of Mark the Dragonfly is the, the two main characters, the two main uh, protagonists end up uh, stowing away on a train. Uh, trying to escape people who are hunting one of them down and um, the security guard who catches them the head of security for the train is actually a shamelin um, and so it kind of okay. it kind of comes up there but uh, I mean it's it's basically just a yeah they're totally this you know race of people who shapeshift into dragons and that's just the thing that exists in this world this would be the train route from Naveen to to Vashal I don't remember at all uh, okay. <laughs> I forget the train I'm looking at the map that they have in the physical book, and they have a train route between Phil uh, and Naveen. See, uh, I have the audiobook, and so I missed out on, on the map. Yeah, the only thing I could think of that really I wondered when I was reading this one, if something was left out be- a little bit because it was uh, a second book in the series, had to do with the, with that group of characters. The the Shamelins? Shamelins, yeah. yeah because... So- uh, Oh, they didn't explain early that they were shape-shifting, and it almost felt like the book assumed that I knew that already. Mm-hmm. And then later in the book, they explained it more. So I don't know. Maybe it also could have been editing. Yeah, I mean, they sort of describe the this race of people, but there's really only the one that's in the first book, the one character. Okay. Um, there's a lot more Shamalins in this book than there, there was in that one, and actually in arguably more action from them because of their role as sort of the security of the city. But yeah, no, I mean, it's one of those things where I feel like if uh, Julie Johnson keeps working in this world, there's a lot of things to explore that she's just sort of sprinkling in, you know, the 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 seeds of, you know, the, there's uh, that race. And then also the other sort of, um, what are they, like psychic? They're almost, I, I almost picture them um, like mind flayers, you know, but nicer. We remember them. Yeah, so you didn't actually meet them, but they alluded to them as creating some of the artwork that they had that was uh, responsive to, like, emotion and stuff. Okay. The, there's also the whole land beyond the mountains where the airship comes from that she gets to explore. Yeah, that, mean, was, that was barely even a thing in the in the Mark of the Dragonfly because, um, I mean, it was sort of hinted at that or, or discussed that the um, – was it the king of the – is it the Iron Kingdom? Is that where, where um, our prince is from? Something like that. So, so the king wanted to like build these giant airships, the size of which you know would would uh, dwarf anything else that's ever been made, so that he could go over the mountains to visit the undiscovered lands. Um, but that was sort of just a, a a way of of describing why there's tension and and how they're gobbling up all these resources trying to build these airships, which would eventually become the war that we're they're, we're dealing with in this book. So, I think in addition to the plot that you kind of outlined I think at least there are two main themes that I saw one was the feeling like you're completely alone or different and don't quite fit in because both I think 
the prince and uh, the main character felt mm-hmm. that way. Yeah, Lena. Lena, yeah. And then the other one that was kind of weird was like not weird. Um, that I kind of saw sprinkled through it was uh, the unquestioned assumptions or unexamined assumptions because like I'm forgetting the boy's name right now. Begins with an S. The the jerk. Yeah, the jerk. Yeah. <laughs> the assistant to Tolwyn. The yeah. Yeah. So she thought that Simon was just being mean to her and hated her and everything, and she never thought to think about how it looked from Simon's point of view, where mm-hmm. she, you know, gets to do whatever she wants. Nobody ever, you know, talks back to her. She doesn't have like parents that are like that are being threatened that her they'll tell her parents that she's not performing well and everything. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Mm. And then the same thing with the prince because he kind of just assumed that his grandfather was a good person and as the book unveils at the end it's kind of like he's not necessarily a great person he's just trying to to do this war for his reasons but they're not necessarily great reasons for the mm. kingdom or for anyone else yeah also he's the one who hired the assassin to kill you <laughs> right yeah. I mean, so that's kind of a thing too right right uh, spoiler alert but I, I mean we kind of did that at the beginning right spoilers be yeah. and all that um yeah, and so no, he and, and I mean, as you get, um, what is it, the the memory jar or whatever it is, that artifact that they that they mess around with, where they they vividly, you know, sort of relive a memory, um, and he relives a memory of his grandfather, like telling him that he's worthless and whatever. Like that's a pretty strong hint that this is not actually a good person. Right. You know, they're both the prince and Lena have this curiosity but they're also they're very childlike because they are kids they're young i i gather they're early teen that's mm. what i gather that was sort Maybe. of the impression i got yeah early to yeah. mid teens yeah they seem to be and they always li- live sheltered and all that they haven't really explored much much experience mm-hmm. either of them so the fact that they have all these assumptions and believe you know so didn't come to me as a surprise for the characterization, but yes, both of them had those, and if they had much change at the end for that sort of attitude, did they mm. develop that way, or they kept pretty much the same? Yeah, I mean, they're still both pretty, I mean, they're both still pretty curious by the end, but I also feel like by the end, they've both grown up a little bit, like, he he's gonna go back home, and and do things the right way and and then try to come back you sort of officially to to learn because he likes um he likes life in the in this city in this mountain city um plus you know lena's there um and and they they break all of the rules in order to help the airship escape but then you know they're like okay now we've done this it's time to go back and like own up to what we've done and and face the consequences of it they're not they're not you know, there's that temptation of let's let's just stay with the airship and run away. You know, um, but the, but they don't. Like I kind of wanted them to because I want to hear that story sometime. But um, but they didn't. You know, they they went back, and so I felt like um, while they're still curious and they're still you know going to push the boundaries of what they can get away with a little bit, I felt by the end that they had both sort of done some growing up and, and took ownership of, of their actions. Yeah, and I think it's important to call it. It is a, I believe, a young adult novel, right? Yeah. 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 So sometimes I think how much change we expect might not be the same. Yeah. Well, I mean, 
there's significantly more change in this than uh, a lot of D and D novels, right? Where where the same oh, character has yeah. been written yeah. about for for multiple multiple books and and okay. are still more or less the the same stoic character. Oh yeah, well, like where the author says the character's been around for a thousand years, so there's not really going to be any change. Right. So so yeah, I mean, I find that that uh, young adult novels actually, I mean, because they tend to be sort of coming of age stories, tend to have more change than your traditional fantasy novels. Um, so, and I and I thought oh, yeah. I thought this one was was fine for that. That didn't. Um, I mean, I thought they they did some nice grown up. Oh yeah, I just meant like it, I I didn't think they were necessarily going to completely change. Oh, sure. Overnight in a young adult novel, because in particular, just because like that doesn't really ring true to anyone no, right. you, you, want a, you want a casual development throughout a story and you're, you actually get that you actually get that in the story as they learn and they accept stuff and change all that and I'm hoping at the end and if she goes back with these characters to the same place and you might have the airship uh, the Merlin it was called come back to them because they had because Lena and Merlin made a connection mm-hmm. so yeah i mean and i don't know if that's the plan or not um you know the first book was really good and left a lot of sort of dangling threads or whatever but uh we haven't gone back to those characters you know and and uh, presumably secrets of solace moves the timeline forward um a bit so who knows what may have happened unless you know unless it's going to jump back in time or we're going to come back and you know they're going to pop up in other books or what the plan is um, I, I find that what she's doing with the setting to be really interesting. Like she's telling these little self-contained stories as if she was writing no- standalone novels in a shared setting, but she's the only one sharing the setting. You know, so you're you're hitting different places. Uh, you're you're you know hitting different characters. You're telling different stories, and they're nice little self-contained stories that make their point. And I don't know that she's necessarily trying to like tie them up in a nice neat little bow because the world continues you know it's sometimes it's a, it's a different technique than usual the usual approach of when you introduce a new world of having the journey and people going to different places and mm-hmm. here's x place and here's x place no mm-hmm. this is okay let's do a story and detail this this part of the world okay now let's go and now we are at the the archivist's uh, mountains mm-hmm. Which I don't even remember the the archivist like coming up in the previous book. Like they probably did because it started in the meteor field. Like that was the the opening location um, was in the meteor fields where where you know one of the main characters was found um, and then was being hunted. But I don't rem- remember it being the archivist being a thing that was detailed, you know, in the first book. So. What do you guys think of the setting? That's one of the things I I find to be the most unique about about these books is the setting. So, what do you guys think? This whole three kingdoms war going on, meteors that drop technology from other worlds, and and all of that. You mean like the mashup between fantasy and science fiction in some ways? Yeah, I mean, I don't, and I don't even know that I, personally. I don't even know that that I. That it feels like a mashup, it just feels unique to me. But but I'm curious what you guys think. I don't quite see the science fiction part of it. I mean, from the other worlds and all that, it's still what's been presented so far. It seems a lot 
that the stuff that's being brought is fantastical, magical in, in nature. I I like the whole. I like the archivist struggles. I mean, from a role-playing perspective or in DNA perspective, I could see as a campaign setup that you set it up that you are starting a group in the uh, the strongholds as in members being the arch- archivist. So. Well, the ship almost reminded me of the TARDIS, and I think part of it for me, and I don't know whether it was intentional or not, when um, they first got on the ship, she had she'd go- gone through this thing where she got to see them getting on the ship, mm-hmm. and I couldn't quite tell, like if if it was purely just the ship replaying it in her mind, or if it was almost like a time travel thing. I guess it was part of it. Oh, see, I thought she was seeing through the eyes of the ship, so to speak. I thought it was a connection, and that it was she was walking in, and the ship was seeing it. So she was basically seeing it at the same time, but her mind was trying to parse information. Mm-hmm. She yeah. got information later because her mind just figured it out later on what was happening. Yeah, yeah but... and I couldn't tell for sure which way mm-hmm. I was supposed to interpret it. Yeah, uh, I, and the ship itself. Like, I'm used to there being... Like, I mean, I've read other books where there's, like, airships in a fantasy-type setting, but mm-hmm. this one felt a little more advanced tech than a lot of those. So I, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of the artifacts, it seems like, were um, more technologically based, right? I mean, I guess we didn't see a ton of that, but, like, they were working with, with you know, in the workshops, they were dealing with sort of mechanical tools and that kind of stuff. It, it was at least, it's a, they're at least more advanced technologically than um, than we know from from tr- traditional fantasy, right? And if you've read Mark of the Dragonfly, there's some very sci-fi elements in it. So I think that, that that's part of the setting. And maybe that's one of the things that, that having not read the first book is is not there as much as is the breadth and type of of things that are artifacts that are falling on these meteors right it is a very cool setting and i do want to more like what is the source of these artifacts that are falling is it really from the sky or is it from being thrown from being launched somehow from another nation or whatever or is there is there like a sky castle or something like that, that that's falling apart and that's what's falling apart? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, no, and that's one of the big mysteries of the, of the setting, right? Is, is these things fall on, in this one area on a fairly regular basis and nobody quite knows why, right? They, they, there's like these meteor storms and a bunch of stuff falls and then nothing falls for a while. So people run out into the fields and scavenge for whatever fell. Uh, and that's one of the main characters from the first book was one of those people who went out and scavenged for, for stuff. So it only falls in that one area? It only falls in that one area, yeah. Yeah, which is why they – I mean and they kind of alluded to that in this book as well because the archi- archivists don't have all of that stuff. They go to this one area to get them and the people who tend to live in that area tend to be like the really poor people um, because they're just – they're scavengers, right? Yeah. And then they sell artifacts out to the other three kingdoms. 
No, I find the setting really unique. The but the mix of races, the it's relatively limited in, in scope and size, right? It's just the three kingdoms, and we're kind of getting some highlights on each of those. I, I mean, I'm I'm intrigued by sort of this undiscovered lands concept, but at the same time, I'm enjoying the the sort of contained nature of um, of the stories so far. Like like I want to see the world expand, but I don't want it to expand too quickly. Like let's not go super right. super big and super epic too quickly, you know? Yeah. Um, I like the idea of the there's basically what the three different sort of races and none of them are traditional fantasy outside of the humans. You know, it's the the humans, the the Shamalin who are basically humans that can turn into dragons, and there's um, the whatever they were called that have the sort of mental abilities, right? The almost psionics, um, and but beyond stuff like that, like. There's no magic in the world. There's no wizards. There's no nothing like that. Nobody's casting spells. Uh, all the weird stuff that they find that they that they have in the setting is generally stuff they find in the meteors. I like that. Um, I, I liked how she was able to bring the curiosity out with the whole cat mm-hmm. um, part. The, because the, the thing the is, cat, is like, the catches oh, fire. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of times, like a, a way an author would approach that is to make it so that the audience is in on the joke from the start and can see where it's going to go sideways. Because mm. uh, obviously what happens is uh, that she decides to use a cat that she doesn't quite know everything about. She brings it into the forge to do a distraction. And instead of it going the way she thinks it's going to, uh, she almost burns the entire place down because the cat will just catch like get more and more on fire as it gets around hot elements and she didn't anticipate that and a lot of times like i feel like authors would write that that we would know to anticipate it but i didn't think we were supposed to Mm -hmm. i think we were supposed to be just as surprised and discover oh wow there's this stuff i don't quite understand either Mm -hmm. which i thought was cool yeah and that creates a whole other dynamic too right because then the cat comes back to and and the smell is different and, and the rest of the cats won't accept it and so yeah. it, has to, it has to go off and live with live with her in the cave with the with the airship. Yeah, and there's so there are consequences for stuff she does, and those consequences exist regardless of what her intent was, mm-hmm. which is a good lesson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, there's no there's no real throwaway thing, right? Everything that she does has a consequence, and and she lives with those, right? Well, yeah. There's her screw up with uh, the the study of uh, Tolwyn, where she put a moss in and went too far and covered everything took over his office right yes so although i also felt that tolman was being kind of was was obviously kind of a jerk right um oh yeah because with that incident you know her curiosity got the better of her and it kind of ruined his his private office that he barely ever used um which seemed odd to me that you live in in a city in the tunnels of a mountain and some guys allowed to have an office that he only uses like once a month. Why would you waste that kind of space? But okay, yeah. whatever. Um, but yeah, so I mean, the the book opens with him like, like basically torturing her. Like, oh yeah, this is what you you know here. Come up and inspect this artifact. Okay, what would you do next? What would you do next? And she she says, oh well, I would run these analyses or whatever. Okay, what would you do next? Oh, then I would reach, you know, and then she reaches into the box, and it turns out there was sort of a uh, a, a fungal or whatever, some spores or whatever in there. And it's like, well, 
if you're trying to make the point that you need to run the test, she said she would do that. <laughs> it's like, oh. you're, but you're in the classroom. You don't have, you know, and you, uh, like, clearly he is just, he was setting her up for failure and being a massive jerk about it. And then it, yeah, you and know, she knew it, too. Yeah. And yeah, she knew it the whole time. She was wondering how he will get her this time. and I mean, oh. I, I, as a teacher, I, I look at situations and I'm like, well, yeah, sometimes students would perceive something like that as I'm trying to torture you, but it's it's maybe more of a tough love sort of situation or, you know, I, I really want you to learn from it or whatever. There's nothing that he's, that he's teaching her from this. He's just being a jerk, you know? Yeah. Oh, another thing I liked was it, it would have been easy with Simon, I think, to make it a, I'm going to, uh, the reason why he is mean to her was just to pull her pigtails type of thing. Mm. And then it didn't tur- quite turn out that, that that what it was was what it was. It's just that he is a really, he's Tolwyn so horrible to him too, mm-hmm. that he was just jealous of what he thought her life was like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of originally saw him as as the Draco Malfoy of the the story, right? And then yeah. he and then he got a little more humanized later. Yeah. Is it Tolwyn was a sort of the Snape of approach with Simon being Malfoy and yeah, except I don't know that like Snape was actually that bad of a guy. I, I like there's no redeeming qualities to this Tolwyn guy. Yeah, no, I yeah. <laughs> it's like, you don't see, yeah. Snape doesn't has some redeeming stuff. He's I mean, a strong. I could. You, I think you could argue that that while he's he's not nice, he he's at least coming from some position of tough love. Like he's trying to do what he thinks is right. Yeah. Tolman's not. He did. He's not redeemable at all. No. He he's trying. I get it. He's trying to achieve power of some sort or superiority or authority that he he's trying to achieve in within the archivist but it looks like the other council's members sort of see that and they're keeping him in check yeah i mean he wanted to imprison prison a living ship just because he thought they should own it yeah yeah i mean and and i'm i can at least I at least understand that in that, like, he sees it as a machine and something to be studied, and maybe it has some sort of onboard intelligence or whatever. But, but it's a, still a machine. I can I, I can kind of understand that perspective. It's a little one dimensional, but I understand the perspective. Yeah, um, you know. But I also liked I, that that there was that theme that came out of of the protection of life being very important to Lena, right? Whether it's the cat. Uh, which she makes some sacrifices in order to try to protect the cat, or um, the refugees that that they that they go off to save, or or the ship, right? Yeah, and I think I think that element of the ship is also why I thought a little bit of science fiction. Mm. It's because the ship itself is kind of like an alien, so it reminds me a lot of ET and stuff mm-hmm. too, where the kids trying to protect an alien life form. Mm-hmm. It's back to the flight of navigator where the ship is alive itself. And mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't leak. You leak. <laughs> yeah, no, the setting is definitely intended to have some science fiction elements. Um, it, it, you know, at the very least, they're, they're, they're sufficiently technologically advanced to be beyond what you would expect from, like, steampunk, I think. So. Yeah, 
a bit higher than steampunk. Mm, at least, yeah. yeah. I mean, and steampunk is a bit of like technology with a fantasy twist too, because steampunk does things with technology that are not actually possible with technology, right? And so they do some of that here too. And I did like one of the morals of the book was that a lot of the reasons why things went sideways is because people weren't communicating, and so they just resolved to communicate better. Mm. Is there ever a story that couldn't be resolved, whether it's TV, movies, or, or novels or anything else that couldn't just be resolved if people talk to each other more? Oh, I know, but then they actually <laughs> did, I think, kind of talk to each other they more. They started doing which, it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> most novels or most stories, they, they, just never, they, they just never see that their lack of communication is the problem and they never actually fix it. Either that or they, they only find out after the other person's dead. Right. <laughs> and so there's no way to fix it. All right, so any other, I guess, any other thoughts on the book? Good, bad? What do we like? What do we want to see more of? Uh, assuming that the next book, and the, that there is another book in the series, and that the next book in the series uh, does not follow the same characters, that it, it follows suit with, with, you know, going from book one to book two, uh, where, do you want, where do you want them to explore next? Where should, where should uh, Julie Johnson go in the next book? The first book was to dealt more with the dragonfly territories. Or? Well, it it yeah, so it ended up going there. It wasn't sort of it it moved more than than this book did, right? This book basically stayed in the exact same spot and, and yeah. ran out to pick your, pick up refugees once. Uh, whereas that book started in one spot and it was sort of a, a travel book uh, oh. for a while. So I mean, you didn't get much in terms of like the politics of the Dragonfly territories or any of that, but but it did deal with the Dragonfly territories um, in the last like third. Okay. Because then, from a logical standpoint, if exploring those would be going to watch, going to see what's happening in the American Kingdom. We might see with if she's using the same characters, we might have Osben return to mm. his kingdom, and you see from his perspective and get involved into. Into the politics or how American Kingdom is set up. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I could definitely see, um, I could definitely see eventually there being like um, cameos of characters that we've seen before, sort of popping up, but not not necessarily being major characters being returned to. Um, and I could almost see, maybe not Osmond because he was so central to this book, um, but I could see like going to that his his kingdom. After like he goes back to the archivist to learn or, or whatever, um, and having another book following his sister, right? Yes. Who, who was kind of like a, a, a military commander in the kingdom. I, I could see a book about her. That'd be cool. Yeah, Eleanor, believe her name was. That sounds right. I mean, it's hard to remember names a lot of times when you're listening to audiobooks because you never see it. You just hear it a lot. Yeah. But yeah. I would love a long short story about the cats. And how they like get resynced. Oh, that'd be cool. Like from their point of view. Uh huh. <laughs> I think that would be awesome. I actually, I really enjoyed the book, and I thought for me it was the right length mm-hmm. for now, given my current situation. Sure. Are you? Are you? Did you enjoy the book enough to go back and check out the first one? Yeah, I think I will actually. And if there's any more, I'll probably read those too. Yeah. No, I was actually I was really pleasantly surprised when I discovered the first book. It was. Um, I was actually uh, going down to my school's uh, book fair, and I was just sort of browsing the shelves, and, and I saw, hey, there's a book here by Julie Johnson. I know Julie Johnson. 
she yeah. she used to write D and D novels. Um, you know, and so I'm like, I sh- I should totally pick this up and check it out, and was very pleasantly surprised. I mean, I shouldn't have been surprised, right? I've, we've read her other stuff; she's good. Um, but it was re- this really unique, interesting story, and I'm like, I don't know if this is fantasy or science fiction. Um, you know, there's dragons, but there's no magic, and there's technology, and they're riding a train, and um, you know, so it was just really, really unique and really interesting to me. And, and um, yeah, know, I'm just really enjoying the setting because I don't quite know where it fits, but but it's fun. Right. Well, and a lot of fantasy tropes come in because like we had the air and the spare and and all of that stuff, too, mm-hmm. and the wars and stuff like that, that mm-hmm. felt a little more like what you would get out of your standard fantasy books. Um, I did also like that it had great gender representation. Mm hmm. So that was pretty cool for me. Yeah, and and I and I have I have come to expect that from Julie Johnson. Yeah. Um. So that's that wasn't a surprise to me. In fact, the the two main main characters in Mark of the Dragonfly are both female as well, and then the supporting cast gets to be male sometimes. Yeah, I wanted to read also the, the previous one, Mark of the Dragonfly. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad I didn't spoil any of the any of the the sci-fi elements. Then I just sort of alluded to them there being yeah. there. No, but yeah, plan, plan to try to find it and read it myself and see. Because yeah, it, it, the world is an intriguing and fascinating world and I want to see more into it. I kind of want to really keep the mystery of this other world a bit longer mm. with a feeling. That way, and maybe hopefully it's possible that she... Throughout her series, she gives out hints here and there, and people, the readers can start trying to piece them together before the big reveal, if she gets that far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so and, and, and there's multiple sort of big mysteries, right? The the meteors are, are a big mystery, and we have no idea what they are, where they come from, but in this book, we get some of these sort of academic theories, but we don't actually know what they are, where they come from. Um, this undiscovered land is is a whole new like it was an alluded to mystery in the first one, but it's a big deal mystery in this one, right? But yeah, I think having big mysteries that never get answered is 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 kind of I mean maybe not never get answered, but don't get answered for a really long time, or just sort of dribble out little teeny tiny bits of it uh, along the way. I think is a lot of fun. One of my favorite things was the book that when re- that gives you a story for every single person differently, and it's yeah. only page per per day. But uh-huh. it was like, to me, that felt magical and great. Just like, oh, cool. <laughs> that said, um, what was the book that Osmond had? Like, I recognized that she was reading, like, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yes. I don't, I don't, this whole, she woke up on the beach and had this gauntlet attached to her or whatever. I have no idea what that was alluding to. Do you got either of you know of that being an actual story? I don't. Okay. But- it, it may it may not have been one, right? But but since the other one was an allusion to something, I'm like, oh, is this like something from our world, but like the future or something? And and so yeah, because it's no. the line, the witch, in the wardrobe, or maybe it came from Narnia. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> no, the, the gauntlet thing. I mean, the closest right now that I can think of is. Uh, the comics, uh, Witchblade. Witchblade. Yeah, so I thought of Witchblade too, but I don't remember any scene of like waking up on the beach and wondering what that thing was. So I, I never read Witchblade. I just know that she has the gauntlet to right. do stuff. So there's lots of comics for it. So there might have been a situation where she was on the beach, but probably I don't know. All right. Well, any any other last thoughts? No. 
Nope. All right. So you guys are both going to check out the the first book. Uh, maybe someday down the road we'll we'll make that another book. I'll go back and listen to it again. It was fun. Uh, and, and if there's future books, we'll continue to check those out. So, I guess that's the end of this episode of the Tome Show Book Club. We want to say thanks to Noble Knight, our sponsor, as well as listeners like you for using the affiliate links for D, uh, DMs Guild and Amazon. We also want to thank our patrons, Doug Palmer and Mark, as well as a couple of new patrons, Gene and Eric. Thank you guys much for your support. If you want to support the show like these fine folks, head on over to patreon.com slash the Tome Show, where you'll get the inside scoop about the sorts of things that we're doing in the future on the show, as well as a uh, chance to give us some feedback when we have questions about what we should be, you know, what advice topics should we be doing, or what do you want us to review, and uh, what do you guys think about this book, and that kind of stuff. Uh, I, I get lots of feedback over there, so check it out. And if you'd like to give us uh, feedback outside of Patreon, you can send us email at thetomeshow at gmail.com. You can call our biz line at 919-BIZ-TOME. That's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. You can find me on Twitter at SarahDarkMagic and at SarahDarkMagic.com. Jeff, where can people find you? I am available over uh, on Twitter as at Squatch. Also, I'm the one who receives those emails and checks those voicemails, uh, which for you Canadians is B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. Is that right, Eric? That would be correct. Okay, very good. Uh, and we also have the uh, the official Tome Show Twitter going now. Uh, I activated, I guess I, I figured out how to re-log into that uh, a few while ago, sort of. I've just been using my personal one for a long time to do Tome Show stuff. Uh, but the uh, at the Tome Show, I think, is the, the Twitter account for the official one, which honestly kind of just goes to me anyway. But um, it's an easy way to reference Tome Show stuff on Twitter. Awesome. And where can people find you, Eric? You can find me easily on Twitter at, at EricMPAQ, so E-R-I-C-M-P-A-Q. And if you want to find show notes for this and all the other great shows coming out on the from The Tome Show, you can head over to thetomeshow.com. That is our thoughts on The Secrets of Solace. Next up for March and April of 2017, we'll be reading Verdant Passage by Troy Dinning. Until then, keep turning the page, Tomites. I'm not a